Top national security officials from Israel visit the White House this week to talk Iran. A longtime New York Democrat draws a primary challenge from the left. We'll tell you why it has the pro-Israel community's attention. And America may have a new ambassador to Israel. All that and we'll welcome Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt to the podcast to talk about the state of anti-Semitism in America and around the world. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 12 of Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, social media would tell us you were recently spotted at Yankee Stadium. How was it attending your first baseball game? It was a little weird, Rich, but I got to tell you, even at 20%, I'm happy to be there. I'm happy to be rooting for my team. I'm happy to get back to normal. And for most other people, it just felt like going to a Met game. Well, there you go. I can't comment on Mets politics with uh, Yankee politics. I can comment on Cubs socks. I'm still rooting for my Cubs. I'd love to get out to Wrigley this year. We'll see if it happens. But let's get to the news. The top Israeli brass visiting the White House this week. The head of the Mossad and the National Security Advisor of Israel meeting with the National Security Advisor of the United States and other top officials. The Israeli side was previewing before their meeting that they'd be delivering a strong message of opposition to the re-entry of the United States into the Iran nuclear deal. But will it matter or is this a fait accompli? Listen, I think the Biden administration is really intent on having real substantive consultations with their Israeli counterparts. I think they want input. They don't want to have the same mistakes of the Obama administration in the way that the consultations did or did not go down with the Israeli government. And I think every one of these exchanges up to and including when there is some kind of a deal or or move forward with the Iranian regime, I think that's a good consultation. And I think it's a sign of progress and things getting back to normal where we're not making foreign policy by trading tweets with foreign leaders. Listen, I'll just say that I remember at the beginning of this administration, listening to people in D.C., Jerusalem, elsewhere, uh, I thought they were crazy. It's it's like they thought something else was going on. I would say to them, did you read Ambassador Dan Shapiro's op-ed in the Washington Post? It's very clear where they're going. They're going to go back into this deal, and they're saying, you can complain, you can say you don't like it, but that's what we're going to do. We'd still like to be friends. And sure enough, after all of the hope that they wouldn't go back into the deal, they'd wait for something else— Abraham Accords have changed everything. They won't lift terrorism sanctions. They'll keep that for leverage. All out the window reportedly at this time in Vienna as the talks continue. And so I, I'm not really sure what the Israelis expected to get out of this visit. Hopefully there was at least some substantive conversation between uh, counterparts for the Defense Department, for the CIA, of how to counter Iran uh, within the region, uh, even while going back into the deal, if that's going to be possible. I will note couple of complications during this visit. The news about John Kerry and a lot of uh, hullabaloo over whether or not he had provided any information about strikes by the Israeli Air Force in Syria uh, to Javad Zarif, the the Iranian foreign minister. We don't know when that occurred. If it occurred, Kerry denies it, obviously. Republicans calling for an investigation. Meanwhile, Colin Kahl, another leading uh, figure in the Iran nuclear deal uh, with a tenuous relationship with the Israelis, uh, confirmed by the United States Senate on party lines very narrowly, didn't even get 50 votes in the Senate. Uh, so, 
you know, there's going to be some complications and rocky roads ahead. I think we just have to face that. I guess. But just coming back in kind of reverse order, when we're taking Javad Zarif's word for what did or did not happen with his American counterpart, and when you even have somebody like Lindsey Graham saying, this seems a little bit ridiculous, I think we all just need to take a sanity check here and not start spinning up, uh, you know, allegations of, of another Watergate just because Javad Zarif decided to, to talk talk about how big of a deal he is and how much access he had to John Kerry. And as it relates to Colin Call, he actually passed with 49 votes, which means at least a couple of Republicans felt so strongly about opposing his nomination that they didn't even show up to vote against him. So it couldn't have been that bad, right? Well, I think that obviously to move forward to the vote, there was a 50-50 tiebreaker with the vice president having to cast the deciding vote. A weak, weak entry for the number three figure uh, in the Defense Department. Not a good look for the U.S. overall. Uh, wish they had had somebody up for that post that could have gotten bipartisan support. And on John Kerry, all I'll say is that anybody who's been in a meeting with John Kerry in their life knows the guy can babble for 30 minutes and who knows where it's going to go. I don't know when this meeting happened. My concern is the fact that he had the meeting in the first place. So because I say all roads lead to New York, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about the a primary that's brewing on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Carolyn Maloney, longtime member of the United States Congress from the Upper East Side. She has a challenger. She's had a challenger the last two cycles in her primary. Another challenger is, emo- is emerging. Uh, and, and J.I. actually wrote a feature about it this week. Uh, Rana Abdel-Hamad, a 27-year-old community organizer who works at Google. Uh, she is coming at Carolyn Maloney very hard from the left, and she's making some noises about something we've talked about a a bit on this podcast about conditioning aid to Israel and something that she believes uh, believes in while she she says she opposes BDS. uh, She does believe in this concept of conditioning aid to Israel. And it's a problem for sure in the Democratic Party. I think she's going to be dispensed with by Carolyn Maloney. Carolyn's been around a long time, fended off lots of challengers. Everybody always says she's this is the one that's going to take her down. And they, they say that up to and including the victory party that Carolyn Maloney has on primary night. It's so interesting, Jared. I have heard this line now from some on the far left a lot, and I think people really need to key in on it. They will say, oh, no, no, I don't support BDS. Of course, I support people's freedom of speech, do what they want, but I don't support BDS. But I do support conditioning aid to Israel to achieve the same objectives of BDS. I think we got to watch this very carefully. I think this is the new BDS that's being operationalized in a very smart way in the sleight of hand. Now, the good news, 330 members of Congress this past week sent a letter to the appropriators saying... We do not support conditioning aid to Israel, period. It's not in the best interest for the United States to do so. That's obviously including all of the Democratic leadership. But we have to be watching, as you say, there is an element of your party that's not so good on this issue. Yeah, I mean, listen, there are definitely people in the Democratic Party, as there are in the Republican Party, who have uh, views that we would rather not repeat and probably views that need to be shouted down at every turn. I would just say that sometimes uh, the Israeli government, the current Israeli government, that looks to change the law while their prime minister is under indictment in a trial so that they they can't be convicted in the trial, they don't make it necessarily any easier on them. I do. I would say, and I do want to get to other issues, 
there are a lot of pro-Israel Democrats in Washington who believe that if only Netanyahu was not prime minister of Israel, Democrats would no longer have a problem inside their party on Israel. It's not true because the electorate in Israel agrees with Netanyahu on all the issues that these far-left Democrats disagree with him on. If you could have a different prime minister from a center-left party, they will have very similar policies on the Palestinians, very similar policies on Iran and other foreign policy security issues. So there is a disconnect there. J.I. of course, will be following all the action through the 2022 cycle, and we will have a lot of that here on on the podcast as well. I would note that we have Jewish Insider exclusive reporting dating back to last fall, but now it looks like perhaps being confirmed by the White House that we may have a new U.S. ambassador to Israel. And Jared, you know a little bit about him. Tell us about him. Well, you, you have Tom Nides, who reportedly, according to J.I. and now the Washington Post, looks like he's going to be Joe Biden's nominee to be the ambassador to Israel. Uh, Tom is a seasoned veteran of Capitol Hill. He was a deputy secretary at the State Department, has relationships relationships on both sides of the aisle, uh, has personal relationships in Israel, and has been in the private sector for a number of years now, uh, dealing in government relations for Morgan Stanley, where he serves as vice chairman, also managing many of their international businesses. And, and Tom is a old school pro-Israel Democrat. Uh, it makes it very clear the kind of relationship that Joe Biden wants to have with the with the people of Israel and with the Israeli government. He believes in a strong defense-based uh, relationship, but also that will acknowledge the changing realities in the world. Tom is not an ideologue. He is somebody who believes that uh, we, we need to build on the successes of the past, regardless of who was president at the time. And so I think it bodes well for the, for the Abrahamic Accords. And I think it signals a nuance to our position on Iran that maybe others others might not have seen coming when you talked about Colin Kahl a minute ago. I think Tom Nides is sort of on the on the opposite end of the spectrum of that as as Democrats go. All right, Jared. Well, uh, we look forward to having him on the podcast anytime. The Honorable Tom Nides would be welcome here when he is ambassador-designate or after being confirmed by the Senate. So we will look forward to that. Anyways, we have a great guest this week, however. So without further ado, let's bring him on, Jared. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Jonathan Greenblatt, the National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. I had the honor of serving with him in the Obama administration. He's also served time in the Clinton administration. He's been an entrepreneur. And tonight we have him on the Limited Liability Podcast. Jonathan Greenblatt, welcome to the podcast. We want to start by diving into a new report you released this week. More than 2,000 anti-Semitic incidents in 2020. Starting out, what's the one thing our listeners should take away from this year's data? Let me just say how excited I am to be on the pod with you, Jared, and you, Rich. It's really quite a pleasure. I'm a big fan of Jewish Insider. I read it every day. I've enjoyed your podcast in the past. I'm now loving the long form on the weekends. So again, like this is just fun for me. Uh, and so I, what I like about J.I. is it always kind of cuts to the chase and tells you what you need to know. So I think it's a good question. Like, what do you need to know about ADL's 2020 audit of anti-Semitic incidents? First, just as background, right? We've been doing this for more than 40 years. You know, ADL has been fighting anti-Semitism in this country longer than any other organization in the organized Jewish community. And we really try to take a fact-based approach to the problem. Because we believe you can't manage and solve what you don't measure and understand. And so our 25 offices around the country 
collect this data all year long. And it's submitted to us directly by victims or synagogues or schools or law enforcement officials. We might hear a media report and then we check up on it. We verify every incident that we report. So it's all very credible, you know, like, you know, bulletproof data. And so the first point to know is that in 2020, despite the lockdown, irrespective of the quarantine, although we were all, you know, telecommuting and remote learning and social distancing, we still saw in 2020 the third highest total of anti-Semitic incidents we've ever tracked at ADL. Again, last year was the third highest year on record. The total number dropped 4% year over year because in 2019, we had the highest year we had ever seen on record. And four of the five highest years have all happened in the last four. Again, let me repeat, 2020, 2019, 2018, and 2017 were four of the five highest totals we've ever recorded. So I think as you try to understand, well, how do we make sense of this? Because we were surprised. We expected the number to go down year over year, but dramatically, because no one was on a college campus. Offices were closed. Schools were shuttered. You know, people weren't going to worship in synagogues. So we anticipated there'd be a steep decline. But to think that it's basically within, you know, spitting range of where we were last year, to think that the numbers are still so high. I mean, Rich and Jared, I'm afraid that anti-Semitism in America, we've reached a new normal. And it's now higher than it was certainly, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But this is actually the new normal that we all have to contend with. So so I just want to kind of break down in your mind sort of the sources of anti-Semitism as you see it in 2020. Alon Carr, who was now the former envoy for anti-Semitism, I heard him give a lot of speeches and he would say there's three pillars of anti-Semitism in the world. The United States, there's this white nationalism, white supremacy, far right. There's this far left uh, fringe that sort of has the anti-Zionism that crosses the line into anti-Semitism. And then there's an Islamic extremism as well that, that foments it in other parts of the world. Do you see that in your own data? Do you see that you know there are equal amounts or one leading over the other? It's a great question, Rich. Uh, and I have tremendous respect for uh, Alan. And we worked with, the, with his office during the Trump years at the State Department, like we worked with his predecessors in the Obama and the Bush years. And I appreciate Alan's perspective. But let me say the following. I think it's incredibly unhelpful when you take the world's oldest hatred, which is a multifaceted, complex problem, and try to squeeze it into the round hole of our current political environment. Anti-Semitism doesn't lend itself to some neat, you know, glib application to our contemporary political context. I just don't believe that. Now, look, we live in a moment right now, right, where everyone is like, you have to choose a side. And everyone sees the world through a lens, right? Maybe your lens is MSNBC. Maybe it's, you know, Fox. Maybe you're, maybe you're, it's Wall Street Journal. Maybe it's the New York Times. Maybe it's Breitbart, God help you, or The Intercept, God help you. But like you see things through this kind of binary prism. And I think that sort of reductive reasoning might apply well to political pundits who have like a, a, an axe to grind, right? 
They get paid to show up on these shows or to write columns for newspapers and take a very specific point of view, and their audience expects that of them. But the reality is, is that we do ourselves an injustice and we, we are unable to solve the problem if, again, all we do is take this very narrow view and say, ah, you know what? I hear this a lot, Rich. I hear, you know what? Yeah, sure. I know about the right-wing extremists, but it's the left that really worries me. I hear that from some of my supporters and people. And then I also hear, Rich, yeah, you know what? You know what? Sure. There are those people on the far left, but it's the right wing that really scares me. I think we should be scared of all of it. Now, take the data that we saw that we see in this report. Some 16% of the anti-Semitic incidences, we can track that the culprits were known to be uh, people with extremist, right-wing extremist ties. Very often, we can't attribute you know, motive because we don't actually know the perpetrator. That's not what we do at ADL, right? We're just tracking the incidents in this case. We're not you know, following each one through to identify as the person who committed that act of vandalism or that act of harassment. You know, when they were arrested, when they were then indicted, when they were then tried by a jury, what did they say was their motive? I don't always know the answers to those questions, but we do know that some, again, 16-ish percent were committed by people with known attributable white supremacist ties, okay? So there is that, but the reality so who's the is- the other 84% then? That's the point. The 84% is, you know, is, is uh, John Doe or Jane Doe. The 84, and, and look, like we're dealing right now at ADL through our office in New York with these acts of vandalism in Riverdale, which for those of your listeners who aren't familiar, it's uh, a section of the Bronx. It's a very idyllic, almost like Mayberry kind of neighborhood that's very modern Orthodox. Orthodox in general, particularly modern Orthodox, it's a lovely, lovely place. Jared and I, our old boss, you know, used to live there or still does. Um, you know what I'm talking about, Jared. I don't. I have no idea. <laughs> that, 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 would be, that would be former White House Chief of Staff, Jack oh, Lou, oh. who we're hopefully, Jack, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the podcast sometime. And, and, and Jack will remember me from Hashkama Kiddush uh, at Kesher Israel. So happy to, happy to have you. Bravo. Him. Bravo. Yeah. But, um, but so with that being said, you know, there have, there's an individual and we're working closely with the NYPD Hate Crimes Task Force, as we often do. And there's an individual who's been vandalizing synagogues there, Rich, for the last several nights, basically throwing bricks through windows or rocks through windows and doing other stuff. And they've recorded him on camera. I'm sure he's going to be caught. Let me tell you something. This guy's not wearing a MAGA hat, right? This guy isn't a member of the BDS movement. This guy isn't seeing, you know, uh, isn't, you know, reading uh, the ISIS handbook. So I say that because anti-Semitism, while it's certainly true, there is a radical left, no doubt. There is an extreme right, no doubt. There is like a, a, a militant jihadist segment as well. And those definitely are sources of anti-Semitism, make no mistake. But on a day-to-day -day basis, if we look at this problem and contort ourselves to fit it into the, into the kind of political, into the kind of conventions that work, you know, for for bookers on cable news shows, right? Or that fit into the predetermined narratives of certain columnists. We just do ourselves a disservice. I really think that. Now, that being said, I should say, again, if we look at the violent, violent anti-extremism, right? There's no question that over the last decade, and, and probably even going back farther, Rich, it is the extreme right committing these crimes. From Timothy McVeigh, 
Flash forward to today is the two-year anniversary of the shooting in Poway, you know, the suburb of San Diego where a white supremacist went in and, you know, killed Lori Gilbert Kay. He shot her to death. He wounded three other people. He tried to murder dozens, but his gun jammed, thank God. That was a white supremacist. And I can give you many examples of anti-Semitic and, frankly, non-anti-Semitic acts of violence perpetrated by people like that. And look, this is a week ago we had the kind of mistrial, I mean, the, the miscarriage of justice in Paris, where Sarah Halimi, this you know, elderly uh, Mizrahi Jewish woman, you know, was thrown out of her apartment window by a lunatic neighbor screaming, Alu Akbar, um, and she was killed. And the, and the French judicial system said he couldn't be tried because he was on marijuana, which means, you know, I mean, that's a get out of jail free pass for, you know, a, a lot of people in this country. Um, I mean, that was disgusting and despicable. But he, this individual appears to have imbibed, you know, the radicalized notion of Islam that, you know, is being exported, not just by ISIS, Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran's number one export is is not just like a militant Islam, it's anti-Semitism. And they send that out, not just to Shia communities across the Middle East and around the world, but to Muslim communities across the world, from their Al-Quds Day, you know, which is a despicable thing, to the stuff they spew every day, Holocaust and Azim cartoons, etc. So that's terrible. And, you know, today we saw HRW, you know, release this report accusing all of Israel of being an apartheid state. And make no mistake, I think... I think they're flat out wrong on those on the facts. And yet I know that there are people on the far left who are going to use this to blame all Jews, right? Not just the Jewish state, all Jews for being illegitimate and colonizers and whatever else. So I'm not trying to diminish the threat that the right-wing extremism, left-wing radicalism, militant Islam face, you know, face our community. I just don't think we can look at the data I'm sharing with you today and say, oh, yep, see what I told you, it's the blank, because it just is more complicated than that. So, so Jonathan, speaking to the you know criticism of Israel that crosses the line into uh, anti-Semitism, we've seen a lot of press coverage over the last year from university campuses where some have had sought to paint Jewish students who support Israel as white supremacists, you know, kind of really perverting the anti-racism message to attack supporters of Israel. Are you tracking this and what's going on on college campuses and, and what could be done about it? So there's definitely a problem in college campuses. Look, I think college campuses, I'll just say up front, Jared, like, I don't believe in safe spaces. I believe that we need to have a willingness to, I believe not in safe spaces, but like brave spaces, right? We need to be able to countenance hard conversations. And I think college campuses are the perfect place to have fierce and intense and impassioned debates about lots of issues, including the Middle East. But there is something profoundly wrong when Jewish students, irrespective of like, you know, how they identify with Israel, Jewish students are marginalized and maligned and blamed, essentially, for offenses committed, you know, perceived offenses committed by the Jewish state. So, like, take the BDS movement, right? This is their specialty. Their specialty is to bully and intimidate Jewish students unless you're willing to renounce your Zionism. Now, we know that from the data that 95% plus of, of American Jews identify as Zionist. And by the way, Zionism means, of course, as you and your listeners know, 
a belief in the right of the self-determination of the Jewish people, just like you believe the right of self-determination to the Kurdish people or to the Irish people or so many others. So denying Jews a basic right you would you would permit for Palestinians, again, or you know, French people or any other people, denying Jews a right you would afford to other people is a kind of anti-Semitism. Okay? And then the hostility and the hate that so often accompanies this point of view is flat out anti-Semitism. Holding Jewish people collectively responsible for what you perceive Israel to do, going and, you know, graffitiing a hill out, going and, and intimidating, you know, speakers. Like, that doesn't happen. Thank God that you don't see that happen to the Chinese Students Association. You don't see that happen to, I don't know, because you don't like the activities that the Beijing government is doing to the Uyghurs or in Hong Kong or any number of issues. And thank God we don't see that. Right? It is wrong to hold a community collectively responsible. But that, again, is what happens over and over. So what do we do about it, Jared? Well, number one, we have got to continue to push and press and not relent in making the case that Jewish students have every right to be on these campuses and represent their full selves. Right? Now, it, without any fear of reprisal. So the idea of a student senate saying, well, you went to Israel, therefore you can't be objective on issues, they say that to candidates, is wrong and revolting. Again, the idea that Israeli and only Israeli speakers should be picketed. The idea that like pro-Israel clubs can't be formed. I don't think there's another ethnic group that is, 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 is as relentlessly targeted in this manner. So number one, I think we've got to push the case with student admin, with, you know, campus administrators, right? And with the leaders on these universities that this is un, really, this is beyond the pale. I think secondly, we've got to continue to work across lines to make sure other students understand where these kids are coming from. I think that's critical too. So to the earlier question you were asking about issues of like how these young Jewish students are perceived, look, the fact of the matter is that many Jews present as white, including uh, myself. I don't want to speak for the two of you, but I know that my wife doesn't present as white. I mean, we live in a multiracial Jewish community, a multi-ethnic Jewish community, and we need to educate others about that so the richness of our experience is actually understood. Now, it is reasonable to say, again, as a Jewish person, I don't face a kind of systemic racism that prevents, for example, black people from getting mortgages at the same rate as white applicants. I don't face the same rates of incarceration or the same sentencing guidelines as people of color do. We, I just don't. On the other hand, that doesn't mean I'm immune from intolerance, but we've got to do more to educate other communities about the reality that we're facing. And then I think the third thing I would just say, and when, it, when anti-Semitism happens... We need to respond to it quickly and consistently, not be emotional, not be hyperbolic, but focus on the facts, because I think ultimately the truth will set us free. And, and that tension you, you, you talked about there, we also have seen it play out in K-12 in some in some situations. We Jewish Insider covered the California ethnic studies curriculum debate. We've seen private school curriculums as well under debate in New York and elsewhere. Uh, you know, this seems like something that we're going to continue to have to deal with in the, in the weeks and months ahead. I, I am afraid so. I mean, the reality is, is that, you know, the ADL office in California and San Francisco and uh, L.A. was very involved in that process, working with groups like Jimena, 
which is a, it's a really terrific organization on the West Coast focused on, you know, Jews who are indigenous to the Middle East and North Africa. That's what it stands for, Jews, Jews in Middle North Africa. And Stand With Us did a terrific job. Uh, it's a great organization and a few others. And look, I think we're going to continue to face, Rich, these fights. And so it starts on the campus. It's trickling down. Um, but where that curriculum ended up isn't what I think we might have imagined, but it's actually not so bad. It's a lot better than the first draft that we saw. But let me tell you something. Who said, I mean, give me an example of a single issue that matters that you don't have to fight for. The reality yes, is, is like we as Jews shouldn't think we've just, we've made it to the promised land, right? And we're done. The reality is if we want to, we in America enjoy more privilege, we enjoy more protection than Jews, Israel aside, than Jews living in diaspora have had over 2,000 years. We have, we have been able to achieve 100 plus years ago when ADL was founded around the lynching of Leo Frank. Jews couldn't live in many neighborhoods, couldn't attend many universities, couldn't work in any professions, couldn't be treated in hospitals, many hospitals. Like we face a kind of systemic discrimination, but as they say, we have overcome. And now we've achieved at the highest levels of business, uh, in the arts or culture or politics. Think about this. I always thought, you know, when President Trump was in office, that we'd never had a president as close to the Jewish people because this guy had Jewish grandchildren in the residence, whether you liked Trump or you didn't like Trump. The reality is he had an orthodox daughter and son-in-law, okay? I mean, that's just the reality. So I always thought, well, can you imagine we'd never had a president so close to the Jewish people? Guess what? Now we have one who's even closer because he's got multiple children married to Jews and his vice president is married to a Jewish man. I mean, it's extraordinary. And the AG and the sec treasure and the sex state. I mean, and look at the Supreme Court. We have been able to succeed in ways that just defy what my grandfather, a Holocaust survivor from Germany, could have imagined possible. But with all that said, I got to tell you something. Our own history tells us if we want to keep these rights, we better be prepared to fight for them because they can. we know from our own experience that they can go away like that. So one of the ideas of how to coalesce around something that allows the community to do just that was the idea of adopting a working definition of anti-Semitism, right? Mm -hmm. Especially for these attacks uh, on Jewish students and on Jews for supporting Israel that, that really cross into this new anti-Semitism, as they've called it for a while. Mm -hmm. and, and so the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, obviously the IHRA working definition, the most common pointed to, the State Department adopted under the Obama administration, as you well know. Uh, it used again, you know, all the way to today. Uh, communities around America have been adopting it, uh, countries around the world. The question is first, is it important in your view that the Jewish community writ large, whatever the Jewish community means, has a common definition of what anti Semitism is? So the ADL, um, let's step back. So the IRA definition, I think, is a great example of a tempest in a teapot. Now we have the nexus that we have the nexus definition, the Jerusalem declaration. I've been told in the works is the Jared definition. Jared, that's right. You're working on like a sequel, <laughs> right? So it's so classified. Rich doesn't exactly. even know about it. Well, Look, maybe Javad Zarif does, but I don't know. Whoa, whoa. Oh, whoa, whoa. oh you, you opened it. Hey, whoa. you said it. Oh, so I'm sorry. News of the go. day. Oh, sorry. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. All right. All right. I think it's going to be, in, that may be in J.I. Have, have, have another drink. Have another drink. Have another drink. All right. 
No. Um, so look, the IRA definition was developed by a panel of, of scholars and policy experts over a period of several years, you know, out of an effort by in Europe to come up with a common definition. You know, these weren't political operatives with an agenda. These weren't like Israel activists. These weren't, um, I would say, people who were committed to a very specific outcome. This was an, an intellectually honest and objective and scholarly effort to develop kind of a consensus-based definition, which is exactly what they did, Rich, which is no small feat. Jews and non-Jews, right, over, again, a long and somewhat torturous process. And so they developed the, the definition. Now, like ADL developed, adopted the definition in 2018, and other organizations have as well. Now, and I think what the IRA definition is useful is in terms of creating a framework for trying to understand this complex and persistent form of prejudice. And I think the examples provided help to contemporize how the tropes play out in real life. Um, I think, frankly, it works. Now, should you use the definition specifically like as a piece of policy? No, I don't think that's what they intended, and I don't think that's how it's written. It's intended to inform a process, right? Not to be a process. And yet we have a series of people who, surprise, surprise, have decided that they think they figured it out and it got a better idea. And while, you know, I I I think to some degree I appreciate their I, I sort of appreciate their intent. The reality is, is that the IRA definition doesn't preclude us from, for example, um, anyone from expressing their freedom of speech. It simply does not. Like, so the notion that we need new definitions, I find to be honestly rich, a real waste of time. Can you imagine if after the Torah, like the early sages said, let's do a Talmud, and then some other sages said, let's do a different Talmud, and then some other sages said, we need a third Talmud. Like, that's I think not they kind of did that. I think it's like the Book of Why or something. Well, I mean, the reality is, is that the way like our tradition, which is one that's literally based on the notion of dissent and that cherishes debate, it's like we take something and then we build on it and we build on it and we build on it. We don't say, you know what, I don't like this. I'm going to go do it my own way entirely. Like, I don't know, but I, it just seems to me that a much more productive exercise for these people might have been to say, okay, we have an IRA definition. It's imperfect. Let's go look at some other ways or some applications of this. I mean, again, literally, if I look at the anti-Semitism that's happened in this country, if I look at the anti-Semitism that's still tearing through Europe, Right. If I look at the fulminations coming out of Tehran and their their efforts to propagandize the world with their toxic anti-Jewish hatred, I wish these people could have put their energy towards solving one of those problems rather than, again, what I would describe as creating a tempest in a teapot. So, so Jewish Insider reported this week there's a congressional letter going around. I saw Congresswoman it. Jan Schakowsky. And I told and I told Congresswoman Schakowsky, I was I spoke to her a couple of weeks ago. And she said at the end of our meeting, she said, you know, I, I got to tell you, I disagree with you on the IRA definition. And I said, well, frankly, thank you very much for your feedback, but I think you're wrong. I think you're wrong. And I don't think we need any new definitions, but I'm happy to have a longer conversation with you about it. But again, like we confuse, you know, what is intended to be a definition developed by scholars to be of, in support of a process 
And there are those who say, no, 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 no. That's the process itself. And that's just, that's the policy itself. And that's not what it was ever intended to be. So I wish Congresswoman Schakowsky, who I like very much, she's an excellent legislator, and all of these other individuals would take their energy and channel it toward actually addressing anti-Semitism itself, because that's where we really need help. So, so Jonathan, uh, you've become a leader on commenting on online hate and uh, what social media companies are and are not doing. And I guess... Uh, you know, what's this tension about, uh, you know, on the one hand, there are those who believe the First Amendment is sacrosanct here. And on the other hand, there are those who believe the social media companies really need to act to curtail online hate and that they are culpable for what's going on and what's transpiring on their platforms and interested to hear your take on it. Um, well, there's a few things I think to think about. So first of all, you know, there's no question that social media is a super spreader of stereotypes, conspiracy theories, and hate of all forms, including anti-Semitism. I mean, hate existed before we had, you know, the internet. Um, but the reality is, is that it, it enabled and amplified anti-Semitism and intolerance on, on a level that we'd never seen, you know, in the history of humanity. I mean, not since the printing press did you create a medium that could spread it in this new and novel way. I mean, again, even television do this because television employed fact checkers, you know, and, and, and standards and practices and editorial boards and things like that. You don't see any of that in uh, new media, specifically social media. So when in ADL in 2017, we actually opened a center in Silicon Valley. ADL Center on Technology and Society, we're the first Jewish group, the first civil rights group with a physical presence in the Valley. And we didn't recruit Jared to run that, you know, I don't know, a former federation executive, although that might have been an approach. Instead, we recruited, we recruited uh, a software engineer out of Reddit. And the team that we've, uh, that we've built there are X, Lyft, Yahoo, Twitter, like people who come from the industry and understand the industry because the pace of innovation is happening at such a blistering rate. I think you've got to have insiders who really appreciate how technology works, who are fluent in the culture if you really want to create change. So that being said, through that center, we're working actively with Google, with YouTube, with Twitter, with Reddit, with Twitch, with TikTok, with Clubhouse, with Zoom, with all of these companies, with Microsoft, with Amazon, with, and even with Facebook, all these companies. And uh, we're working with them because, again, we think we need to be engaged and collaborative. And often they call us and say, we saw this content. Is it a problem? Or we reach out to them. We say, hey, this, this trend is happening. You need to know about it. So there's a good back and forth. Um, but at the same time, even while we will constructively work with them, we will call them out when we need to. And that happened, of course, last summer with Facebook which prompted us to launch the Stop Hate for Profit campaign. But let me speak specifically to the issue you're raising, Jared, which is the First Amendment question. And I'll acknowledge right now, the ADL is a civil rights organization, which has been defending the First Amendment for longer than any of us have been alive. And the truth is, is that so much of, I think, the, the freedoms we enjoy in this country as Jews, our ability to worship without fear of recourse, our ability to go to public school and not be, you know, uh, proselytize in the classroom, right? Those are benefits we derive from the First Amendment. I think it's been fundamental to the success of the Jewish people in the United States of America. And we defend it ferociously. But there are a few things we should keep in mind. So first of all, the, the, the First Amendment, 
allows us for freedom of speech, but it doesn't allow for the freedom to slander people. Mm-mm. It allows for the freedom of expression, but not the freedom to incite violence against individuals. Mm-mm. It allows for you to share wacky ideas, the wackiest ideas, but not to yell fire in a crowded theater. Mm-mm. So the reality is, is that freedom of speech itself, there are some existing constraints as defined by the courts. And the reality is, if you get on these platforms and you say hateful things about Jews, we have to have some degree of tolerance for that because I think even hateful speech, you know, Justice Brandeis the, you know, wrote about this uh, almost 100 years ago. We have to have some tolerance, even for ideas we don't like. But the trick that I think is that while there are fringe ideas, Jared, that we need to accept, the companies have an obligation to decide do they want to put, take those fringe ideas and keep them on the fringe where they belong. So uh, when you slander someone, when you incite violence against a, a community, Jewish or otherwise, that's not protected speech anywhere in America. But if you want to say hateful, hard things, the reality is they don't necessarily need to be programmed in prime time. So if you were to ask me, I think, for example, that algorithms shouldn't amplify intolerance. And that could be changed tomorrow. And that doesn't curtail anyone's free speech. I don't think hateful content should be monetized. That could change tomorrow. That wouldn't impair anybody's free speech. The companies have a right to decide what kinds of speech they want to privilege and what kinds of speech they want to push down. And if you don't like it, you know what you can do? You can go to a different platform. But when we're talking about this, this is just basically, I would say, Jared and Rich, the same rules that all other businesses use. Look, there's a reason why Max Newberger isn't inviting David Duke to do the podcast with you guys. I mean, he could. Are you curtailing David Duke's freedom of speech by not inviting him on here? No, I think you probably would say to David Duke, go find a different podcast to do, right? And there's a reason why Richard Spencer doesn't get op-eds placed in the Washington Post. That's not curtailing his freedom of speech. The Post decides who they want in or who they want out. And so I would suggest that Facebook, Twitter, Google, and the rest of them can choose what specific speakers and topics they want to privilege and lift up and which of those they want to push out and deprioritize and deplatform. And that isn't a matter of inhibiting their free speech because Richard Spencer and David Duke can take their toxins and they can go spread them somewhere else. So I'm going to do a Jared Bernstein downshift, though I think we could talk about that topic uh, on social media and, and the bright lines and the gray areas and all that for hours. You are a very unique uh, Jewish communal professional based on your background. Jared would call you a serial social entrepreneur, worked at startups, large companies, federal government. Uh, how does that prepare you for leading an organization like this? Does it give you an edge among your peers? How do you view that? Well, I think that's a good question, Rich. Um, well, first of all, obviously me versus my peers, like I don't think it's a competition, so I don't think I have an edge on them. But I do think that some of the experiences I've been fortunate to have have prepared me well for this environment. So start out with, again, like I started out as a product manager. That was my first job out of business school. I worked at a tech company called Realtor.com. And I was responsible. Like, and look, I started out as the, you know, assistant, junior, associate, product manager. I was just north of the receptionist, Rich. 
right? So I don't want to pretend like I had some glorified job. I certainly didn't. But I had to learn how to build software products, which meant I had to learn. I, I didn't come to the company as an engineer, but I had to learn how to code and how to learn how to be able to speak the language of engineers far more technical and talented than me. And then I had to learn how to understand customer requirements and how to engage with the sales force and how to work with a marketing team and how to deal with the finance and like build a business case, like all the things that go into product development. And I learned over time, I was actually pretty good at assembling a team and laying out a goal and motivating a, motivating a group of people and actually making our numbers and like hitting our marks. I actually did that reasonably well. And that kind of general management role was really good prep for the kind of job that I have now. And secondly, then, you know, I, I, my roommate from business school and I launched a company, Ethos Water, after that. And that required me to go out and raise money on an idea, right? Like I had, I had never started a, a company before and I had to go to very seasoned, you know, um, investors, venture capitalists, private equity people, try to get them to invest in our idea and understanding how to pitch and how to sell, I think is an invaluable, uh, skill that I was able to develop. And then starting something from nothing was really, really hard. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done and building a business that we, that, you know, we, we built and we grew and we scaled and we got to the point where we were able to sell the company to Starbucks. And then I went to Starbucks and I worked for Howard Schultz. You know, I was the global, I was the vice president of global consumer products responsible for our bottled water business. It was like $150 million business at the time. And so I had to learn how to manage in a very complex matrix organization and really operate at scale, right? And drive my brand, drive my product across 7,000 stores all over North, that's probably more, call it 7,000 company-owned stores across North America. That was very complicated. And then a couple of years, I did a few other things, but I ended up at the White House right before this, where I had to learn how to operate in an incredibly dynamic, 24-7, like always changing environment, where literally think every day the agenda is different and you have to be incredibly responsive to the vicissitudes of the, like, the world around you. So you have a plan and then it's helping you. So I think, and you have to develop political intent, right? And you have to learn how to intuit things and anticipate and adapt and pivot very quickly. So I think all those experiences have helped me in different ways with the job that I'm in. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, like, I don't, I, I think time will tell how I'm judged at this job, but I think generally you just try to keep your head down and do good work and try to, again, take a fact-based, you know, follow the evidence approach. That's really what I try to do. I can say with firsthand knowledge that Jonathan was great in terms of his political antenna and always putting the events that I asked him to do at the top of his to-do list. And as far as I'm <laughs> concerned, that was aces. So, so Jonathan, we're going to finish up by asking you uh, what we like to call a lightning round question. Um, we really want to get to know your uh, a little bit more about you. So what is your favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Tachlis. Tachlis. Tachlis translates roughly to like, like what's the meat of the issue? Like what's the real deal? So I like that a lot because I think it kind of, I, I always want to try to talk Tachlis with people and like, just like cut to the chase. What do I need to know? Tell me the truth. And I think Tachlis is kind of an authentic, you know, kind of yeah, authentic, just very Jewish way to describe, like, just tell me what matters. 
So I, I like that a lot. Jared, we need to update the website because it should be Limited Liability Podcast. Listen, listen, I think Jonathan was being nice to me because I wrote a column called Talking Talkless on the White House blog when I was White House Jewish liaison. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Maybe he really prepped for this interview. Ladies and gentlemen, National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back on the pod soon. Thank you so much. Great to see you guys, too. Great to see you, Jonathan. If you have comments, questions, show ideas, and tips, send us an email at podcast at jewishinsider.com. Please come follow us on Clubhouse when we're hanging out there and at Twitter at J.I. Podcast. Remember to follow and subscribe to the Limited Liability Podcast on your podcast listening medium of choice and ask your family and friends to do the same. Until next time, this is the Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you so much. I was hoping for lightning around like favorite Jewish food, favorite Jewish comedian. Oh, yo, we you know. can do that. Do, you, I, yo, I bring it. do, for, do it now. Do, we're we're now in overtime. It. We're now, ladies and gentlemen, we oh, are I in love overtime. That. I love we're that. in overtime. It's we're now it's talkless, talkless. Okay. All right, go. Favorite Jew, favorite Jewish food. What do you, so what do you what do you, what do you call like yeah, what do you call like your overtime for the show? You need a name for it. Like, you know, Bill Maher's got overtime and you need to like brand it, guys, and put those nuggets out, you know, in the in I think it's like, it's like it's like it's like it's like Jewish standard overtime. So <laughs> so it's like so we have no idea what time it is now. So wait, what is your what, what is your favorite Jewish food, real quick? I mean if you I I, I think I know what it is. I think I know what it is because I once asked you for a recipe to you submit. Did. But let's see you if you did. See, uh, let's see you if you have the did. same answer. You did. So um my favorite Ashkenazi Jewish food is definitely matzah brai. Hmm. Who doesn't love matzah brai? Okay. Like I love. Are you, Jody are you saying be, that like if we were doing this like in September, October, would that still be your answer? Are just you because kidding it's fresh me? In your mind, three hundred sixty-five days a year, I could eat matzah brai, ladies and wow. gentlemen. Wow. And, and by the way, I like it sweet, not savory. I like it with applesauce, so <laughs> don't mix it up. And what what about your favorite your favorite Sephardic one? Oh, oh so well, so my you know. My in-laws are Persian, and so they would say they're not Sephardic, they're Mizrahi. No, no, your, your favorite Mizrahi or Sephardi? I would say um, I definitely like Gondi. So Gondi are like, um, they're like chickpea, they're like chickpea matzo balls, if you will. And that's a very kind of peasanty, kind of Jewishy Persian dish. Uh, Gondi, it's called Gondi, uh, Gondi Tehrani, Gondi Tehrani. So you could ask your Persian Okay, I want that. that. I want that. It's I want that. very delicious. Now, there's lots of delicious Persian food, but that's one that I think is more Jewishy than other just general Persian foods. Well, under the Cyrus Accords, when Israel and Iran finally normalize, we will all be in Tehran to eat that. So it'll be nice. Inshallah. <laughs>